Hi, and welcome to another episode of Endeavor TV and the Endeavor Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Breitkoff. Today I'm speaking once again with my colleague and friend, Christy Davin, who is a parent, uh, an educator, and an expert in communications. And today we're talking about a really uh, interesting topic that um, I get a lot of questions about this topic, especially over the last few years. It's on uh, tuition and room and board and other college costs, and the facts and fantasies about uh, free tuition, scholarships, and things of that nature. How are you doing, Christy? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Okay. Um, so I, I wanted you to talk about this because both as a parent who's ha- uh, who has college-age children and in your experience uh, in communications and literature, uh, pardon me, uh, education, you've been uh, probably spoken to a lot of people about similar topics. And so I just wanted to bounce some ideas off of you and talk about some things that you might have heard as well. Uh, this all kind of started with an article that parents and students keep uh, sharing with me and bringing up to me. Uh, it's a series, of actually, several different articles from 2015, and it's about uh, this big announcement that Stanford University made that they were expanding free tuition to pretty much all undergraduates. And it got folks very excited, and they, they often ask, what does this mean for other schools? And the big problem with with this question is, it, it, they're, they're getting many different uh, things conflated and confused, especially with this idea of free tuition and what that even means. So I wanted to first talk about tuition. So from your perspective, what's tuition? What is tuition? Well, from the layman's point of view, and we, and we should qualify my position on this topic. Uh, I do have college-age students. My son, as you know, we've talked about it before, is taking a gap year. So um, tuition isn't something that I have gotten really personalized with. Um, we haven't, I haven't, don't have experience with the FAFSA yet. I understand what it is. I've looked at it just enough to be a little intimidated by it. Um, but for, from my perspective, tuition and room and board, I know that those two things are separate. Too. So and books would be separate. So to me, tuition is attending the school mm-hmm. before you buy a book and before you eat or sleep. Right. So exactly. And I agree from my perspective. Uh, and again, I don't have college-age t- uh, children. I know what tuition is from my experience as a student, both undergraduate and, and graduate school. Tuition is the cost of the school. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, when they look at the cost of a school, whether it's Stanford, which is a, what a lot of these rumors and stories are about, uh, or any other prestigious institution or the local college, they think of the entire cost as tuition. And I think you, you made a really great point. Things like room and board, which are another major expense, and uh, things like books and other minor expenses, comparatively speaking, of course, they're still expensive, uh, are separate. So if you have tuition, which is the cost of attendance, and you have room and board, and room and board is the cost for living on campus, the cost of the room in which you live in the dorm, the cost of the meal plan, the food you eat. Before we move any further, I wanted to ask you a question that I think maybe others may have, which sure. is, um, is it true that there are some colleges that will require you to live on campus? That is, if I wanted to go to an expensive school but thought maybe I could cut some corners by living at home or staying with an aunt if they lived nearby, is, mm-hmm. is, are there schools that require you to actually be a, a, boarding, a boarding student? Almost every college. Okay. Uh, pretty much every private college and university, and when I talk about private colleges and universities, uh, they are 
privately run institutions, they are non-for-profit institutions. So we're talking about schools like Harvard and Yale and all these schools that are not uh, public universities. Uh, and many public universities will do the same, although uh, many other public universities, and those are state schools, so that's your, you know, University of Colorado, Iowa State University, UMass, Rutgers, places, any place like that that's funded by the local state government. They will often have a large percentage of students who are commuters. Um, so there are those options, but it's almost exclusively public universities. Okay. Pretty much every private college and university in the country wants the students to live on campus. That's part of the experience. It's not just for uh, the benefit of the student in terms of getting to class on time, it's community and culture. There's a culture that the school is trying to create and they want the students on campus to participate in clubs, to live in the dorms, to, to build that culture and community that makes that school unique and stand out. Well, and also as a parent and as an educator, I know you and I have talked about it in the past, that there's more to college than the classes. The the personal growth and independence yeah. that is learned by being on. So I understand the value of that. Right. But I'm wondering, you know, how many people are thinking, well, sure, the college I want to go to is $65,000, but I also know that 20 of that is room and board, mm -hmm. so I can stay with Uncle Joe, and you know, live, who lives right. half an hour away, and save that money. So, right. that so that's that, not going to happen. No, no. I mean, it, most private universities and colleges require students to live on campus at least for freshman year, usually for freshman and sophomore year. And so far as I know, the majority will want you to live on campus through junior year. It's really senior year is the year where um, they're really flexible about that. And part of, half of it has to do with um, the number of students who've applied to these colleges, these private colleges and universities, has grown so much that there may even be a housing crunch they may not have been able to keep up with the number of dorm rooms. And so they actually are okay with some seniors and juniors living off campus. Um, there are many colleges and universities that don't even let freshmen or sophomores have a car on campus. Yes, well, as you know, I went to Denison, and that was the way it was where yeah. at Denison, you, the parking was very limited, right. so freshmen weren't allowed to have a car. Yep. And seniors were only allowed to live off campus in certain designated and approved um, houses, and there was a lottery. They right. don't. They don't let very many people now. Is it yeah. is it a financial reason or what? What do you think the colleges want um, students to live on campus all the way through? I I, I mean I, I don't know if it's a financial thing. I don't know if the room and board. Uh, I mean these are these are nonprofit organizations primarily, so I don't think it's about the money. In fact, I think housing and uh, room and you know the the cafeterias are very expensive to run. So I don't think it's for the financial benefit of the school that they want students on campus. I really think it's about having that community feel and making sure students are there so they can get to class on time. There's no excuse. I don't have to worry about driving there, traffic, mm -hmm. parking. I live in, you know, famous donation last name quad, <laughs> and I can just walk over to famous donation last name building to go to my classes. It's right across there. Okay. You know, I think that's the real reason. Okay. So if it's... um. So we've got the students living on campus right. and there is no getting around that expense. How much of the expense of college is, is, is room and board? It's usually less than the right. tuition, right? From what I've observed, it's probably about anywhere from one-tenth to one-half of the cost, depending on the school. Okay. And most schools, it's probably about one-third. 
So one-third room and board, two-thirds tuition. Again, that's just uh, an anecdotal observation. I have not sat down with the spreadsheet and crunched the numbers. Sure. But that seems pretty reasonable based on what I've observed from lots of schools to which my students have applied. Okay. And I know I'm asking you a lot of questions. No, so that's if you've got other direction that you want to go in. But no. um, one of the other things I wanted to ask is, so if, let's say, it's $60,000 to go to the college of choice right. and 20 of that is room and board, does financial aid apply to both? That's a great question. Yes, that's actually one thing that almost every college takes into account. So this whole started. This whole thing started for me with all these parents and students forwarding these articles from 2015 on Stanford University's big announcement. So it goes back to what they announced. And what they announced was that they were going to have free tuition in quotes for any student whose family, parents earned a total of $125,000 a year or less. And that any student whose parents or family earned $65,000 or less would get free room and board. And that sounds great. But free tuition is, let's be honest, an oxymoron. Mm -hmm. If it's tuition, it's not free. So the way it really works, and this is where the confusion comes in, is you still get a bill. You still get a bill, even if you qualify for this. And you still owe that money. But instead of paying for it with actual money, with your own cash, or a credit card, or getting a student loan, you're paying for it with a scholarship from the school. So the school is basically, metaphorically, handing you a ginormous pile of cash, which you then hand right back. It's an accounting trick. Okay. They have a scholarship fund which pays, transfers money to the school's um, bursar's office that's the office that that takes in money mm -hmm. and that's what happens so it's you have a bill but it gets paid for by a scholarship fund run by the school okay. and that's what stanford was saying is that students who meet this financial requirement if your family your parents combined earn one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars a year or less boom the scholarship fund will pay 100 percent of your tuition and they made it sound like it was a brand new big deal here's the thing that most people don't realize Stanford has always had this program. What they did was is increase the threshold from $100,000 a year to 125. And remarket it and repackaged it as a new thing when in fact fewer people now qualify. Actually more people qualify because the more threshold people, is high. Sorry, right. right, more people qualified, so it was a good thing. It's a great thing. It actually ended up being I believe it went up to 90% of incoming freshmen that year qualified for this scholarship now. 90% at Stanford. Wow. Yeah. So their endowment is be... Well, there's, endowment is large, but also Stanford is a younger university than the Harvards and Yales, so they don't have as many um, uh, legacy families. So they have a higher percentage of people who are of moderate to low income applying to Stanford than Harvard or Yale. So that's one of the reasons why it hit that 90% threshold. And it is a big deal, but it's, A, not like they didn't have this program before. They were just lifting the numbers so that more people fit in under that umbrella. But here's the funny thing. Even in 2015, Princeton University, for example, another super fa fancy, prestigious, famous school, their threshold was $140,000 a year or less. It was already even higher. Hmm. And nobody noticed that in all these fancy articles. So a lot of these schools, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, the Ivy League schools, and the near Ivies like Stanford, set these numbers of if your family earns less than this amount, there is a scholarship fund here at the university that will cover you. If you can get in, there's no reason not to come. And for people who are not from well-off families, you don't even need to take out loans. It really saves on that long-term expense. So it's a really good thing, but it's a, 
a little too much padding on the back for these schools. And the same thing with the uh, room and board. The threshold moved from 60000 or less to 65000 or less. It just changed by $5,000. Hmm. So if your family earned under $65,000, free room and board. So. Okay. so when it comes to applying to those schools, do you think that declaring that you are financially qualified for that counts against an applicant? Not at all. Okay. No, because again, a lot of these schools that are older, more prestigious, they have a lot of legacy candidates and they're under fire for that. You know, they're under fire for, well, Timmy's going to get in because Timmy's dad and Timmy's granddad and Timmy's great granddad and T Timmy's great, 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 great and dad went to Harvard in 1650 with Cotton Mather and, you know, was a Puritan and whatever. And so that those kids are still there and... But they're, they're a minority of the students and, and, they, and taking up a lot of spots for a very tiny, um, very wealthy pool of people just uh, actually these days is bad for the school. It's bad press. So they want students who are from disadvantaged backgrounds that makes the school look better. It also increases diversity. And diversity, in my opinion, is a, is a good thing because if you think about, let's say you are trying to reach an audience, whether you're a TV show or you're um, advertising a product or you're trying to communicate a policy. If you can communicate to different populations, the more you can communicate to, the more different populations you can reach, uh, the more widespread whatever it is you're trying to talk about will get. And those other populations exist. It's not just, you know, legacy families from the 1600s that exist in this country. Sure. So, and that's part of that living on campus and learning about the world around you that's so important. Exactly. So having students from different communities on campus that more closely matches what the world at large looks like, prepare students better for that world. So, um, Back to the financial aspect Absolutely. of this whole thing. You had said something to me earlier that I thought was interesting, um, <clears throat> that tuition is different from fees. Now, when you say fees, are you talking right. about room and board, or is there another no. component that people may not be aware of? So for a lot of these private universities and colleges, a school that, say, costs $65,000 a year, it would be $40,000, $45,000 a year in tuition, $25,000 a year in room and board, and then there would be a few small fees of a few hundred dollars each year. There'd be a fee that grants you access to the athletic facility. That way, as a student, with your student ID, you could go and work out in the weight room or use the swimming pool on campus. It's like a gym membership, and that, that would be like a $100 a year fee. I'm assuming it's mandatory. You can't. Yes, it is mandatory. So they separate it out, but they don't let you choose whether or not you're right. going to use right. it. Right, and there's other fees like that <clears throat> for different facilities. Uh, there's a, a lot of schools will have a like a, a student government fee. You have to pay $100 or $200 every year, $250, and that's your fee for the student government. And that's kind of and that way, the student government has money to grant to different clubs. Okay, so Things fees like aren't that. really a deal breaker at private colleges and universities. Okay, public universities have done something different. So I know this from my experience here in Massachusetts, that the University of Massachusetts system and the other state schools are prohibited by state laws from raising their tuition more than 1% or 2% a year. It's really to technically keep the cost of college affordable for students in state. So a school might only have a tuition of $5,000, but the problem is that that state university or that state college it's very expensive, you know, costs have gone up, the cost of faculty, the cost of building new buildings, keeping up with the fancier private colleges and universities. So to make up for that, 
they're able to raise fees. So a school might have a tuition of $5,000 a year, but have $10,000 a year worth of fees. And so scholarships from the school may only cover your room and board and your tuition, but, but they don't cover your fees. Okay. And there may be scholarships that do cover those fees if you earn them, but most students don't qualify for those types of scholarships. So it can get extremely expensive. Okay, so you and I were talking a little bit earlier about the schools like um, University of Maine, for instance, which, which has billboards all over the place, talking about how they will match out-of-state state tuitions. Right, so there's another thing. Private universities <clears throat> and private colleges, whether it's Bowdoin or Denison or Harvard or Occidental College in California, they charge one fee. Whether you're from California or not, Occidental College charges you the same amount. Whether you're from Massachusetts or not, Harvard charges you the same amount. No public state university does that. They have a lower fee, lower tuition, lower room and board for in-state students. And for out-of-state students, so if you're a student from New Hampshire or Vermont or Massachusetts and you get a get into the University of Maine because they have a program at Orono that you really like and, hey, Stephen King graduated from there and taught there once, you want to go there, well, guess what? If you're not from Maine, it costs more. And so what schools like that are doing with this price matching that we were talking about previously, off camera, of course, and off air, um, was they're saying if you, they want to grow their student body because Maine has a smaller population than, say, Massachusetts. So they'll advertise in Massachusetts saying, hey, we'll match the in-state tuition of Mass if you come up to Maine. So you won't be charged the one and a half or two times as much as an out-of-state student. You'll get the lower Maine resident rate. Or we'll charge you what the state of Massachusetts charges you, which is still lower than what we charge. So it's, it's, it's basically, it's, um, you know, they're, they're looking for, to, to give students deals. It's, it ends up not being a scholarship, but it behaves the same way in that you're paying less. It's more like the bill is less not that they're giving you more scholarships. So does this also um, sort of a way around the whole tuition and fees thing that state schools do? Sometimes, yeah, because again, these schools are advertising to specific populations. So if you're in Massachusetts and you get a scholarship but it only covers your tuition and the fees are gonna crush you, and you're like, oh, I don't wanna take out student loans for fees, and then University of Maine says, well, we'll match, you've already earned this scholarship and we'll match their rate, so you actually end up paying a little bit less out of pocket, so you have to, you, if you need to take a loan, it's smaller, it ends up being more cost effective. That's a really smart way for a school like the University of Maine, which is a very good public university, they have a great reputation, but it's a great way for them to grow when they're in a state that has a smaller population. It's harder for them to grow organically. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And I don't know if, um, we probably don't have time for it now, but I think we either have or should have a, um an article, but also a video on scholarships, how to find them, how to apply to them. You're absolutely right. I do want to talk one thing about scholarships, um, that the thing about these these scholarships is that they're, that we've been talking about with these free tuition things from Stanford and whatnot, is that they're in-school scholarships. These are scholarships offered by the school to the students who have accepted admissions. So that means that if you got into Stanford and you also get into UCLA, you can't use the scholarship you earned at Stanford to pay for UCLA. It's that school's internal scholarship fund mm -hmm. that they have built through their endowment and their alumni. And so every school is going to offer you something different. The scholarships that I think you want to have in a separate episode about, which I agree with, are outside scholarships. Right. Scholarships that you can apply to separately and apply to wherever you go. And I think that's a really good idea because it is a completely different thing. Um, you are actively seeking out outside scholarships. When you apply to a school, they tell you what you've earned from their 
scholarship fund. Which is different from financial aid. No, it's a part of financial aid. It's one aspect of financial aid. Okay. So there's scholarships, grants, and loans, and we should probably have a separate episode on that too. Yeah, which ones you have to pay back and which ones you don't. Yeah, that's a big deal. Why, and why grants and scholarships are two different <clears throat> things, which most people don't even realize. So that's, those are other topics we should talk about. So you should look out for those because those are going to be coming up in the next couple of weeks. I think those are good topics. These, this is a great series that we can have sure. on this topic. A lot of people have a lot of questions about it. Yes. Exactly. Anything else on your mind before we wrap it up? No, I think that I'll look forward to that next episode. Excellent. I do, too. Uh, before I let everybody go, just be aware that there is an article on our blog, and I hope that we're going to put that in the show notes for the audio podcast and in the description below for any videos, whether we have it on whatever internet platform we're going to put the videos. And so please look those up uh, for extra reading. And in the meanwhile, if you have any comments, you can leave them below on the videos. You can comment for the audio podcast on our Twitter account, at EndeavorPod. If you do, I get a notification. I will follow up with you pretty quickly because I get pretty excited when I get a notification. I know you do too. Uh, so thank you so much for watching. Please leave some comments below. Uh, if you like our episodes, feel free to hit that share sheet. Share them across all the platforms. Wherever you share them, we get credit when people watch them, so it counts for us. And you can like, fave, star, heart, whatever your podcast or video app of choice lets you do to say, I like this. Please do so. We know when it happens, it makes us feel good. And lastly, please remember to subscribe so that you can get audio podcasts downloaded to your phone or other listening device right away, or you can get notifications on Facebook, YouTube, wherever, when a new video posts. Thank you so much for watching and listening. Have a great day.